0: Well, good morning and welcome again to St. Paul's, both here and if you're joining us online, we're just so glad you're worshiping with us this morning. As I begin, I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, I ask that you send your spirit on us now and drown this place, so that all we see and hear and know may be of you, and that by your spirit, in hearing your word, we would see the face of your Son, Jesus Christ. In whose name we ask this. Amen. Well, as Jenny mentioned, it's the first Sunday of Lent. And Lent is that period of preparation where we get ready for Easter, but we know that we don't get to the resurrection joy of Easter without going through the cross. And so Lent is a journey to the cross. And so for the next five Sundays, we are going to be doing a teaching series on shadows of the cross in the Old Testament you're spiritually seeking or visiting, we, we talk about the cross all the time in church. And I'd guess that most of us, wherever we're coming from, might have a sense, yes, Jesus died by being crucified, which is nailed to a cross. And depending on where you're at on your spiritual journey, you might say, yes, yeah, something important happened at the crucifixion, but what exactly? Why is the cross the central Christian symbol? What is the cross about? What happened there? And so we're going to look at stories from the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible, the Bible of Jesus. Stories where we can see the cross of Christ foreshadowed because the cross wasn't an accident. All of human history leads up to it. It's where everything changes. And in these stories from the Old Testament that we'll be looking at during Lent, we're gonna see different aspects of what the cross means because the cross isn't just like a lever you pull to get to heaven. It's the place where God is doing the fullness of God's work. And we're going to see different facets of that work, as like when you twist a jewel and look at different sides of it, or if you're approaching a city on a plane and you're coming in from a different angle, you're going to see a totally different view. So today we're going to start by looking at the story of the cursed tree. It's a story we just heard read from Genesis when we hear about the creation of humankind, of how God made us to be, and of how we went wrong by eating from a tree that we weren't supposed to. And we're looking at this because the cross is also a sort of tree. It's also a cursed tree. And we're going to see three things when we read Genesis in light of the cross. First, that our Genesis story tells us the created purpose of human beings, which hasn't gone away. Second, how a tree was where our purpose went wrong. And third, how a tree was where God restored that purpose. So what we were made for, how it went wrong, and how God made it right. Now a quick word before we dig into the content of the story, I've got to deal with the elephant in the room, which is, of course, how you read Genesis. Different people in this room are going to hear it differently. And some of you are going to hear the Genesis story and hear a historical narrative. There was a man named Adam, there was a woman named Eve. They did this, it happened just like that. And others of you are going to listen to Genesis and hear a story you can't bring yourself to believe, at least not literally. And if that's you, then there's a very real question here for you, isn't it, of what this story ought to mean to you and for you? Because the world's full of stories. So what makes this special? And if you can't believe this literally, fair enough. I want to give you a way in. The late chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, Jonathan Sachs, described the biblical creation story as philosophy and a narrative mode. In other words, it's not necessarily meant to be read like a newspaper report. Instead, it's a story. It's a story inspired by God, a true story, a true story that tells us something true about us and where we come from. And it's important, actually, that it's a story, because a book of philosophy you might be able to reduce to a series of precepts, but a story is always more than its interpretation. It demands to be grappled with by generation after generation. It yields endless fruit. And my point in saying this is to open the story in Genesis, this story of the cursed tree, as meaningful and powerful and life-changing for people who can't believe it as a historical narrative. God gave us this story by his spirit to tell us who we are. This is the word of God for us. And you can absolutely believe that Genesis is philosophy in a narrative mode and simultaneously believe in the literal, historical, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. At least I managed to do it. (laughs) All right. So let's move on. So remember this story tells us something true about ourselves. And first point, the creative purpose of humanity. We're starting in uh, Genesis 2.15. If you'd like to follow along when your pew Bibles are on your apps, that would be great because it's pretty text-based here. Uh, right at the beginning, you can't miss it. Chapter 2, uh, 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And I'm starting that with that verse because here in one line we have humanity's purpose. Like, if you ever wonder why you're here, well, the reason God created us, Genesis says, was to tend God's creation, this perfectly ordered garden full of plants and animals. God creates us from creation out of the dust of the earth, breathes the breath of life into us, and gives us a life and mission to care for creation. Because humanity has a special place in this creation. We're in it as overseers. Unlike the animals and the plants, humans alone are made in God's image. And what that means is that we alone share in God's creativity, God's imagination, and this gives us a responsibility to use our gifts to care for creation in a way that worships and honors God, to till and keep the garden, assist in its flourishing. We're made to be gardeners. That's our purpose, to be in creation, overseeing creation in a way that honors God. That's the first thing we see. That's our purpose is to use our God-like gifts to honor God. Now the second thing. Where it goes wrong, somewhere in the garden in the middle of the garden actually there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and God tells Adam look you can eat from literally any other tree all the good ones mango pear whatever but don't eat from that one because the day you do you'll die and isn't that a kick in the pants like if you've got this superbly dangerous tree why is it in the garden at all let alone in the center and here's the thing Here's the thing. The knowledge of good and evil is a poetic way of saying the knowledge of everything. It's like saying top to bottom or east to west, okay? To eat of this tree would be to know everything that is or could be, the good, the bad, and the ugly, to have that power. And the question that bugs most of us, well, why put it in the garden of all? Well, the answer is, it sort of has to be there, doesn't it? Because remember, this is philosophy in the narrative mode. So the story's telling us the world didn't just come out of nowhere, God made it put it in its place, put everything in order. And that means that the knowledge of the whole thing, the God's eye view, is in creation. It's potential. But the important thing is, we didn't need to know everything to have a God's eye view to do the thing we were created to do, to fulfill our purpose, to be good gardeners. We didn't need that God's eye view for our work. The knowledge was there to be had. It's there, unavoidably there, but it just wasn't for us. That doesn't stop us from taking it. And isn't this just the way we get tempted to do stuff, right? It's not like Eve set out this morning and she's like, I'm going to defy God with historical consequences. No, we all know how easy it is to lie to ourselves when we want something. I'm sure it's not that bad. I deserve a little treat. So the serpent says, did God really say you shouldn't eat from any tree? And of course that's not what God said, but that's the kind of question that opens the door to doubting God. Did God really say it? No, Eve says. We can all eat from all of them except from that one, except because that's the one where we'll die. And the serpent replies, you're not going to die. You'll be like God. Instead, you'll know good and evil, knowing everything. And aren't all the best lies half true? And Eve looks at the tree, and it looks tasty, and it looks beautiful, and she takes a bite. And Adam, who's evidently standing right there, he has some too. And the consequences are disastrous for us. And remember, this is philosophy in the narrative mode. The story tells us something fundamentally true about ourselves, about what it means to be a human being. And the fact is, we exist as people who have crossed a line, wanting to be more than we were created to be, not content to serve God, wanting to be like God. We didn't and don't stay in our lane. And there are two consequences of this. One is natural and one is supernatural. The supernatural we didn't read because this... Verses were already really long to begin with. You can check it later. God punishes humanity uh, for disobeying the divine command. Defines how we exist in the world. Basically, that sustaining and generating life is going to be hard and painful. But I'd argue that the natural consequence is even more significant, which is, by eating the fruit, humanity actually did get knowledge of good and evil. Of everything that could be. Our eyes were opened, and that was catastrophic. Because this knowledge, this capacity, is destructive to us. That's why God said, don't take it or you'll die. Like, there's nothing wrong with gasoline. You just put it in your car. You don't put it in your mouth. The tree gave us a knowledge that exceeded our capacities. God could know everything that is and could be and still choose only the good, still create only good, but us open a door to evil, some new invention, and we will dash right through. Like you would never teach a baby how to turn on a stove, right? That knowledge is not good for them because it would let them make a choice, the consequences of which they couldn't handle. Eating that fruit was like giving a toddler a stick of dynamite and some matches. We're not capable of knowing good and evil without choosing the evil and being destroyed by it. And God told them that. He said, There's, these are the consequences. You can't live with them. And what this means is that our created purpose was distorted and poisoned by our ability to imagine evil. Because God gave us originally creative, imaginative powers that echo God's own. And throughout human history, we can see the way our inventiveness, our creativity has been used for destruction and pain and exploitation instead of the gardening, the flourishing that they were intended for. And I'm I'm not saying we don't do anything good with our gifts. Look, we're surrounded by the fruit of good human work. But it seems to me an empirical fact that as a people, we are drawn as moths to a flame by the evils that we can imagine. And when you understand it this way, it changes what happens, it changes how we read what happens next. When God says, we can't let them eat of the tree of life because they'll live forever, that's not punishment, that's a mercy. That's a mercy. That's God sparing us from living forever with the consequences of our actions. God gifts us with death precisely so that we won't have to be immortal with the fruits of our distorted, misapplied gifts. God banishes us from the garden for our own good. That's how it went wrong. What's the third thing we see? How the cross makes it right. So fast forward to the cross where Jesus died. Probably a crossbar of wood balanced on a vertical trunk. So the cross is a tree. A grotesque parody of a tree. It's dead, lifeless. Instead of giving life, it steals it. The body is hanging from it. It's strange fruit, as Nina Simone sang of those who died on lynching trees. And I want you to see how the cross is the direct consequence of that original sin, of using our God-given gifts to imagine evil, because the cross didn't spring from the ground. Nobody planted the cross. Somebody invented it. Some guy, somewhere, was the first one to come up with the cross. Took God-given gifts of intellect and creativity and craftsmanship, I'm not kidding, metallurgy, woodworking, and came up with the cross. Like, look, if we balance the crossbar just right, yeah, we might need to strengthen the main trunk. The nails are probably going to have to be this thick. We're going to have to put them here and here so they don't rip out. Yeah, he'll hang there in agony, maybe for days before his own body weight kills him. This is great. And then this little invention, This ugly little invention is deployed by the great invention of the Roman Empire. This massive project of money and power built on the backs of exploitation and slavery. All these gifts meant for service and life and beauty, just twisted by our sin into domination and death and ugliness. We were made to be gardeners and the cross is the tree we came up with. There's a straight line, straight line between the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the cross of Christ. A straight line between the tree of the curse and the cursed tree of the cross. A straight line between the tree whose fruit was beautiful but forbidden and the tree whose fruit is hideous and blasphemous. St. Paul says the cross meant Christ became a curse to us because in the Jewish law it's cursed to hang on a tree. And that means that when Jesus Christ, God made man, chose to go to the cross, that was God willingly taking on the consequences of our sinful human condition. So God doesn't just say like, out of the garden, off you go, have, have a good life. God follows us into the go- out of the garden in Jesus. The cross was God willingly entering into the mess we've made, the unmitigated catastrophe of pain and suffering that is human history, and suffering it with us, and for us. At the cross, we see a God who takes on our curse that should take our breath away. The story of Jesus' suffering and passion, of his choosing the cross, that's what we'll be telling over the whole course of Lent, especially the Holy Week before Easter. But for now, I just want to show you what God does with the cross, how God restores, uh, uses the cross to restore our created purpose. There is this tree of death, that we invented because we couldn't handle the knowledge of good and evil without producing something like that. But God could handle those consequences. God could know evil without being consumed by evil. And so in Jesus' death on the cross, God submits to our evil. Imagine that! That's a wild thing to say about God. God submits to our evil, but our, the, our evil couldn't consume God. We're not that big. So Jesus, God in flesh, takes the consequences of our sin, but they can't consume him. He consumes them. Jesus doesn't just erase the consequences of our sin. He consumes it on the cross, and he transforms the consequence of our sin, this cross, into the means of our salvation. And at the cross, that demented parody of a tree with a body stapled to it as fruit, God makes it bloom with the fruit of eternal life. And that's why we gather today and every Sunday before the cross because it's at the cross that we are restored to our creator and our purpose is redeemed. We've all still got these God-given gifts. You brought them in here today. And don't we just want to misuse them throughout the week, all the dang time, choosing after what ta- chasing after what tastes good, what looks good, what makes us feel bigger than we are. But when we come to the cross today at, or at any point throughout your week, we remember who we are who we were truly made to be and who Jesus has restored us to be. At the Eucharist, at the Lord's Supper that we're about to receive, we take gifts of bread and wine. Bread and wine don't grow on trees. They're fruits of the gifts that God gave to humankind. And we say here, we know they're small, but we're offering our gifts. We're trying. We're going to offer our gifts. Will you do something with them? And God in his grace comes, and what we've made, the bread and wine, becomes spiritual food for us. The cross becomes a fruit bearing tree, bearing the body and blood that gives us eternal life. It becomes a new tree of life that we can reach out at any point and live. And we leave with power from the Holy Spirit to go back into the world as gardeners again, using every gift, every talent, every thought in God's service. And this is the gift. Sometime this week, you're going to find yourself going astray. You're going to find yourself tempted. You're going to find yourself angry. You're going to find yourself choosing evil of some sort. And God will meet you right there if you ask him. And Jesus will say to you, I have overcome your curse, and I have transformed your curse into your blessing. And you can own that in the moment. You can say, God, you have transformed my curse into my blessing." And Jesus says, turn and follow me. It all starts in the worship of the one who died for us. And it overflows into the lives we live out there. Still imperfect, still plagued by that knowledge of evil that keeps on tempting us, but by God's grace, no longer leading toward death. Instead, the curse removed and the promise of eternal life restored. Amen.